Amen, amen. Well, good morning, Haynes Creek. It is good to be with you this morning. I hope you all are doing well on this uh, just beautiful day outside, right? Lovely, lovely weekend we have here in Georgia. But uh, I'm glad you guys are here, glad to be worshiping with you. Before we get started, just a quick reminder, we've been announcing this for a few weeks, but Operation Christmas Child, we are going to be collecting those boxes next Sunday. So if you would like to participate, we got one more week to bring those boxes in. Uh, please bring those next Sunday, and we're going to get those off to the shipping center. Um, there's some more uh, cardboard boxes back there that you can grab on your way out if you'd like to use one of those Operation Christmas Child boxes. Grab one of those and bring that in next Sunday. In church, we're going to continue on today what we've been doing, where we're walking very slowly through Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Philippians Chapter 2, if you don't have a Bible, all the verses will be here on the screen. And as always, uh, if you don't own a Bible, don't have one of your own, please grab one of those on the table. We'd love for you to take that as our gift to you today. And uh, as you're turning there, I'm sure you've had this happen before. This happens uh, pretty frequently, I think, where, you, uh, where you're told something, you hear something, you experience something, and it's like, man, there's got to be... There's got to be more to it than just that. There's got to be more going on than what you just told me. Um, this happened to me recently. A couple weeks ago, um, we, we saw that it was going to start to get cold. And, and you know how Georgia, like we do these fake seasons here in Georgia where it's like, hey, it's going to be cold, but for a week. And then it's back to 80 degree weather. Or it's going to be hot, but for a week. And now we're back to 30. Like it, it does this. So we saw that it was about to start getting cold. So in our house, the only thing that runs on gas is our furnace. So uh, we had to call the gas company, get it turned on, because literally the, that's the only thing that needs gas. So we turn it on for the cold months, and then we'll turn it off um, in, in the spring when it, you know, maybe at some point gets warmer. And then I'm sure we'll have that. It's like, hey, it's going to be hot. And then it's going to be cold for another month. But whatever, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. So I had to call the gas company, get everything set up. So they send out somebody to turn it on and make sure everything's working and it's all safe and all that kind of good stuff. So they do the downstairs unit. Everything's fine. And he goes upstairs. He turns the gas on, turns our heater to the on position, and nothing happens. Nothing happens. It doesn't work. And he's like, hey, sorry, I'm not an AC guy. I'm just the gas company. Uh, you got to call somebody to get that fixed. And I'm like, oh, great. Now our heater has issues. And, and since moving in this house, we've had the AC company come out like three or four times already with issues. The, the most recent time, they didn't have to come out, but uh, something was wrong with our unit. It was just running the whole time. And they're like, hey, you got a thermostat issue. Replace the thermostat, and you won't have a problem. They're like, when you replace it, I don't know if you guys have done this before, but when you replace the thermostat, they're like, there's going to be wires plugged into different ports do the same exact thing with the new unit. Plug them in the same positions with the same wires, like, got it. So I did that like six weeks ago. Everything worked great. It was fine, problem solved. So again, back to a couple weeks ago with the heater not working. So it's not working, not turning on. I can't even like turn it to cold and it's not, it's not like it's completely done. So I called the AC company that we've used for years. I'm like, hey, this is going on. They're like, actually, we just had somebody finish your job and they're going to be head your way now. I was like, oh, praise God. This is amazing, right? So this guy comes out and he's like, hey, the fuse is blown up in the unit. So there's no power. So we got to replace that. So he fixes the fuse, puts a new fuse in and they're testing it out and it's still not working. He's like, you need a new thermostat. I'm like, but I, but I just put in a new thermostat. This thing is like barely breaking in. Like we're talking like four weeks ago, I replaced the thermostat. Like that, that can't be the problem. He's like, no, I'm telling you it's the thermostat. I'm like, why, why is this thermostat not working when it was working 20 minutes ago? It was working and now you're telling me it's not. He's like, I don't know. You got a bad, you know, got bad thermostat. I'm like, 
okay, I don't know much, and I'm not an AC guy, so I'm going to trust you on this. But in my head, I'm thinking, like, this just doesn't add up. There's got to be more going on. This can't be it. But you know what? I'll take your word for it. So the next morning, run to Home Depot, get a thermostat, put it in, nothing. Doesn't work. I'm like, I, I knew it. I knew something was wrong. But I'm like, now I'm starting to, like, doubt my own self. I'm like, well, maybe it's the type of thermostat that I'm buying. So I go back to Home Depot. I buy a new thermostat to have on hand for when the AC guy, because I'm, I'm, I just knew I was going to call the AC company. He was going to come back and be like, no, 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 you need, a, you need a different brand of thermostat. Like, your house just hates this specific brand. Like, I was not going to let that happen. So I was going to be like, oh, no, no, I got a new one. Try this one out. Right? So I, I was prepared. So I call them. They send somebody out that afternoon. And thankfully, the guy figures out what was actually the problem. What was actually the problem was there's this extra wire that was plugged in that I didn't need. Again, how was I supposed to know that, right? It was sending, it was sending too much power to the unit, and it was blowing the fuse. So he's like, you don't need this wire. I'm like, well, okay, well, rewind, because I called you guys, and you said plug the wires into the same place. I plugged the wires into the same place. It should work. He's like, well, yeah, it turns out you don't actually need this wire. I'm like, I don't. I don't, I don't understand. I, help me out here. So anyways, the guy like explained everything, something with the way the new units are made, whatever. Our house is old. That was basically the, the decision. It's, I don't need this wire. So he's like, I'm just going to stuff this wire back into the wall. I'm like, that doesn't seem safe. But he's like, no, trust me. So I'm like, okay. I don't know. Anyways, it's working. We have heat. We have air. Everything's good. But there was that moment where I was like, this just isn't adding up. Like, there's got to be more going on. There's more to it than just this. And, and when we come to Jesus, when we come to the truths of Jesus, what we see about Jesus, where we left off last week, we see Jesus, right? God, fully God, fully man, dead on a cross. Dead on a cross. Buried into the tomb. And, and there's just something within us that, that should cry out. I mean, there's, there's got to be more than that. That can't be the end of the story. God can't be dead. There's got to be more to it than this. And praise God that there is more to the story of Christ than his death. We have some good news awaiting for us today, church, as we continue on in our journey here through Philippians. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dig into what we have today. Jesus, thank you for this morning. We thank you. Uh, for who you are, for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your people, Lord, to come and worship and praise and lift high your name and, and love on and encourage and, and be with one another, Jesus. So I pray over our time today, Lord, I pray that you would, you would speak to us, Jesus. Lord, we don't, we don't need to hear from me. We don't need my words, my ideas, my thoughts. Lord, we want to hear from you, Jesus. So speak to us through your words. Speak to us through this time today, Lord. Open up our hearts and our eyes to you, Jesus. Reveal yourself in deeper ways. Strengthen our faith and our trust in you today, Jesus. So we love you. We pray over our time. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so again, as we've been walking through this, we're, we're spending our time really digging deep into Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And in the last three weeks, we've, we've, we've gone through verse 6, we've gone through verse 7, and verse 8. That, that is all one sentence in the original language. That's the first section of this, you know, hymn, poem, whatever you want to call it, about Jesus. And, and today we're going to step into the second sentence, which is verses 9 through 11. Um, but it, but it, these first three weeks, we've seen that, that Jesus is fully God, right? He's fully God, equal to God, form of God always has existed, second person of the Trinity. He is God. And, and when he comes to earth through the incarnation, he doesn't strip away any of his divinity. No, he adds humanity to his divinity to come and live as a man, right? One person, two natures, fully God, fully man. And he comes
comes and he lives the perfect life that you and I never could. And then he dies in our place on the cross. He dies the death that we deserved. Right? He lived the perfect life. He died as a perfect substitute for us. And that's where we left off last week. So let's pick it back up. And I'm going to start in verse 5. Again, we're reading all of this section each week to help us keep it in context and see where everything comes together here. So starting in verse 5, it says this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so like I said, we're, we're going to zoom in here on verse 9, and we're going we're gonna to ask the same three questions that we've been asking these first three weeks, right? We're going to ask, what does this verse teach us about who Jesus is, the person of Jesus? We're going to ask, what does this teach us about the work of Jesus, you know, what Jesus has done, what he is doing, what he will do, and we're going to ask, okay, based on all that, what does that mean for me as a believer living right here, right now? Okay, so, but for this week, we're going we're gonna to flip those first two questions. So we're going to first deal with the work of Jesus. Because based on what this verse tells us about what Jesus has done, that's what informs us about who Jesus is for today. So we're going to flip those two. We're going to ask first, what does this teach us about the work of Jesus? Then what does it ask about, or what does it teach us about the person of Jesus? Okay, so hang with me. If you're taking notes, write this down. Point number one, what does this teach us about the work of Jesus? It teaches us that Jesus is highly exalted. Jesus is highly exalted. He's highly exalted. Look again at verse 9. It says, For this reason God highly exalted him. God highly exalted him. Now that that word in the original language uh, for highly exalted, it's one word, and it's the only time that word is used in the entire New Testament. In fact, there's some Bible scholars that say that Paul kind of made this word up because it's just not, it's not really present in many places. Now, that's not actually true because it's used in other Greek literature, but, but it is a very unique word. And, and it means, it's like super exalted. Like, not just like highly exalted, not like you're just a little bit more exalted. Like, you are exalted over and above everything that currently exists, everything that has existed. Like, you are supreme over everything. That's what the word means. And that's what Paul is telling us about Jesus here, is that, that he is highly exalted. He's highly exalted. Now, we just said that in verse 8, it ends with Jesus dead on the cross. So what's happened between that point and now in verse 9 where he's highly exalted? What's going on here? What does this teach us about what Jesus has done? Well, it tells us that, that the exaltation of, of Jesus, it, it starts after the death of Jesus and after Jesus died. The Bible tells us on the third day, what happened? Jesus rose from the dead. The exaltation of Jesus starts at the resurrection. The resurrection. 
And the resurrection is something that Jesus spoke about constantly throughout his time. He constantly told his disciples that he was going to die and on the third day be raised again. One of those places is Matthew 17. It says this, Matthew 17, 22 through 23. As they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. I think that's interesting that they were deeply distressed because Jesus just told them, hey, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. You would think that they'd be like, oh, cool, that's awesome. But there was some doubt here that we see play out in the lives of the disciples. All they heard and all they're focusing on is that Jesus is going to die. Because the fact that he's going to be raised from the dead, it's like, oh, well, that's, uh, I don't know about that, Jesus. That's a cool thought, but I don't, I don't know about that. But man, you're going to die? That's really sad. And that, that deeply distresses them. But Jesus is like, no, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again. And then we see that this is exactly what happens, right? We, we see that Jesus is killed on a Friday. We celebrate that as Good Friday, uh, as believers say, where we reflect and we remember on the death of Jesus. He was buried Friday evening, dead in the tomb on Saturday, and then on the third day, Sunday, Easter Sunday morning, guess what, y'all? The tomb was empty. And Luke records this. In Luke chapter 24, he says this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. The tomb was empty. Jesus raised from the dead. And what's interesting, what I find just incredible about this is Jesus was raised from the dead in physical form, right? He wasn't just this like floating spirit, ghost-like thing, just kind of floating around to people raised from the dead. No, he was raised to dead in physical glorified form physical form. And we see this over and over again after the resurrection. We see in, um, in John chapter 20 where he appears to the disciples. We see this John chapter 20 verses 19 and 20. When it was evening on the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came, stood among them, and said, peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. He's showing them his physical scars, where they put the nails, where they jabbed the spear in his side. He is raised in physical form. Later in John 20, it says that he even has a meal with his disciples. Again, Jesus is not just some ghost-like spirit figure floating around. He is in physical form. And he stayed in that physical resurrected form for 40 days after the resurrection. Acts 1-3 tells us that after he suffered, he also presented himself alive by, to, to, to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And Paul writes this about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 3, he says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. So Paul even tells us while Jesus was here in that 40 days, man, he was appearing to all sorts of people, to the disciples, to other followers, and now to over 500 people. And Paul's like, look, some of them, they're still alive. Go ask him about it. This happened. Jesus is alive. He is alive. He defeated death. 
the resurrection is the most significant event in all of history. We'll talk about why in a little bit. But this was a big deal. Jesus is not dead. He is alive. He's alive. We have a risen Savior, church. He is alive. And the exaltation of Jesus begins in that moment when he busts out of the grave on Easter Sunday. And then we see that, that after he was raised, after those 40 days, what happens? Well, Jesus is no longer here. We were told that he, he ascended back to heaven, right? He, he left heaven to begin with to come, and he, when he adds his humanity to his divinity, he comes and lives as a man, and then he ascends back to heaven. We see this told in other places, but, but Acts 1-9 puts it this way. Acts 1-9 verses, uh, or Acts 1-9 through 11 says, after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. So Jesus ascends into heaven, and that's where he is now. He is reigning at the right hand of the Father. This is how the Bible puts it, and the, that term highly exalted, what, what Paul is saying here. That's what Jesus is right here, right now. And it's because of his work, it's because of what he's done, it's because of the resurrection and ascension that Jesus is super exalted, that he's highly exalted. And right now the Bible says that, that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. That, that's the place of prominence and superiority. He is at the right hand of God the Father, and he is supreme and reigning over all of creation. Hebrews 10.12 says, But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Acts 5, 30 through 31 puts it this way. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to the right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 1, 3 says the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then Colossians 1, 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And Colossians 1, 18 says, He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now we hear those phrases, firstborn, and, and again, I want to be clear that that doesn't mean that Jesus is born. He wasn't created. He wasn't the first of creation. No, he has always existed as God. But that, that, that expression, he's the firstborn, that's the place of honor. That's the place of superiority, right? That's the place of prominence. And that's Jesus. I love how Colossians 1.18 ends this, that, that he is to have first place in everything. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's what it means to be highly exalted, super exalted. He is to be, and he is, first place in everything. He's first place in everything. He is superior to everything. He is over everything. That's Jesus. That's the exaltation of Jesus. And it starts with his resurrection, moves to the ascension, and then to the exaltation at the right hand of God. And before we move on to our next point, I think it's important for us to, to recognize the order of how all of this happens. It's the order of how this happens. Notice that, that verse 9 starts out, it says, For this reason, 
God highly exalted him. Well, that, that points back to what we saw in verses 6 through 8. Based on what Jesus did, based on what he's done for us, that's what leads to his exaltation. That's what leads to his place of prominence. And what does it tell us again? What does he do? Verse 8, he humbled himself. God himself humbled himself. And then comes the exaltation. Exaltation comes after humility. This is what we see all throughout Scripture. And Jesus paves the way. He shows us what it looks like to completely humble ourselves. He, he perfectly humbled himself to the will of God, even to the point of death. And he calls us to live in the same way. The Bible teaches, and it's very clear, exaltation comes after humility. But when we look at the culture around us, when we look at the world around us, we're taught the exact opposite of what the Bible tells us, right? We're told that, man, if you want to be exalted, if you want to have prominence and glory and honor and power in this life, man, you got to go and take it by any means necessary, right? Do it by your, by your own ambition and, and your own hard work and your, your brilliance and your skill, and your, your drive, right? That's how we find prominence. That's how we find glory and honor in this life. I mean, you're willingly laying yourself down, willingly taking a back seat, willingly uh, kind of being self-sacrificial, like, that, that's crazy. That's not going to lead you to anything other than being passed over by other people who want it more. I mean, you're just going to be looked down on. You're going to be trampled over. You're going to be this doormat. You're going to be taken advantage of if you live like that. Don't live like that. That's what the culture teaches us. But that's not the way of Christ. That's not the way of Jesus. I love how his exaltation is, is put in Revelation chapter 5. So when we come to Revelation chapter 5, John sees this vision of, of who Jesus is in his fully glorified, resurrected, supreme place. And, and this is what he sees. Revelation 5, starting in verse 1, says, Then I saw at the right, in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. And I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look into it. No one was worthy. No one was powerful enough to do this. And I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And we think, man, we hear this, we think, man, here comes Jesus, this powerful, conquering king and ruler and just awesome and might and power and glory, right? He's the one that's worthy. He's the best. He's awesome and, and amazing and powerful and, and big. And, and we think that's what John's going to see. And then verse 6, he says what he sees. And then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And this is where, this is where things turn. We think he's going to see this conquering king, this conquering lion, and yet we see a slaughtered lamb. And that word used for lamb is the word for a baby lamb. We see a little slaughtered baby lamb, what we would equate with weakness and humiliation and no power, no glory. But that's what John sees. He's the one who is conquered. He is the one who is worthy. 
We don't see a conquering lion. We see a slaughtered lamb. This is what verse 13 says about him. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. How does Jesus conquer? How does Jesus become exalted? It's through sacrificing his life for ours. It's through humility. It's through willingly laying his life down, willingly going to the cross and taking our place. That's how Jesus is exalted. And that's, that's what the Bible calls us to. That's the life we're called to, church. You want to be exalted. You want to have the glory and the honor that the Bible promises to followers of Jesus. It doesn't come through taking it by might and by power. It doesn't come through our own ambition and drive. It comes through humbly following in the footsteps of Jesus. This is what 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6 says. It says, in the same way, you who are younger be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. We are to walk in humility. We're to live in humility. This is what the Bible calls us to. Okay, so we see Jesus being exalted through his work, through, through his resurrection, through his ascension, and that is what leads to the next part of this verse. What does it teach us about who Jesus is? Second thing, if you're taking notes, write this down. It says that Jesus is given the exalted name. So we see that one, Jesus is highly exalted. Number two, Jesus is given the exalted name. Jesus is given the exalted name. Let's look again at, at verse 9 here. Verse 9. Philippians 2, verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. The name that is above every name. Now, what's, what's that talking about? What's that mean? What's this new exalted name that's above every name that Jesus was given? Is, is it a new name? Is it one of his current names? Like, what, what's the name here, right? What's the name? Well, there's two popular opinions that are, that are uh, put out there by most Bible scholars. One is that it's just, it's just the name Jesus. It's the name Jesus. If you, if you keep reading in verse 10, it says, So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So it's just, it's just Jesus. Jesus it's, it's, it's his name. That's the name that's, that's exalted above everything else. It, it's his name. It's Jesus. And then others will say, no, it's, it's the name Lord. If you keep reading again, if you go down to verse 11, it says that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how the Bible tells us one of the ways that we know that Jesus is fully God is by that title, Lord. It's the, the, the word Lord in the Greek there, and we know that from the Old Testament when we see the personal name of God, Yahweh, that's the Hebrew name for God. When we see his personal name translated into Greek, it's the Greek word for Lord. That's why you see in your Bible all the time those capital letters for Lord. That's the personal name of God. So what Bible scholars will say is that when Jesus is called Lord, what they're saying is that Jesus now has the personal name of God. That again, it's this, it's this statement of equality with God. So those are kind of the two options that are put out there. It's either Jesus or Lord. In my opinion, you can take this or leave it if you want to. You can say, Travis, you know what I'm talking about. That's fine. You're not going to hurt my feelings. My opinion is that it's not really pointing. I don't think it's really pointing to uh, a specific name or title. I think it's just more telling us about who Jesus is with this. I think it's more pointing to, to who Jesus is and who he's always been. See, in, in Scripture, throughout the Bible, names, names are important. 
Names are a big deal. And you constantly see that with names. It's often, especially in the Old Testament, it's often said, this is person's name and, and it means this. And, and somebody's name pointed to their identity. It pointed to uh, their, their character. It pointed maybe to their, their purpose in life. Like names were a big deal. And there's special big moments in Scripture where, where God changes somebody's name because now something's different about them and their name needs to reflect that. We see this with, with Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament. Genesis 17, we're told that Abram go, Abraham goes from Abram to now Abraham. Why is that? Because Abraham means the father of, of many nations. And that's who God's saying, you're going to be that person. That's what you're going to be, so I'm changing your name to reflect that. We see in, in Genesis 32, Jacob, his name gets changed to Israel. And that, that name Israel means striving with God. And this happens after Jacob spends the night wrestling with, with God or Jesus or an angel. I mean, depending on who you talk to, we don't really know. But he wrestles with somebody all night. And God says, your name is now Israel because it means somebody who strives with or against God. And isn't that exactly what the nation of Israel becomes? Don't they go through this pattern of, of striving and working with God? And there's other times where they're very much working against God and striving against God. So he changes his name to reflect more of, of who he is and who he's going to be. We see this with, with Paul in the New Testament, right? His name is Saul. That's his Hebrew name. But at one point, it just kind of goes from Saul to now he's called Paul. Why is that? Paul is his Greek name. And who's Paul mostly ministering to in his missionary journeys? Greek people. Gentiles. So he goes by his Gentile name. Like, it, it makes sense because that's what he's doing. So names, names are important in Scripture. It points to, like I said, identity or character or purpose. So when we come back here to Jesus, when he's saying that, that Jesus is given the name that is above every name, Jesus hasn't changed with his exaltation. He's not different in some way. He's not being given a new identity. He's not being given new characteristics. He's not being given a new name. But what has happened is we are now seeing more clearly who Jesus is and who he's always been. Through the resurrection, through the ascension, through his exaltation, we are seeing the supremacy of Jesus in a new way. This is more, more for us. This is a, a deeper, a clearer revelation of who Jesus is and who he's always been. This is not, this is not new for Jesus. It's just new for us. And now the name of Jesus takes on greater meaning. Who Jesus is takes on deeper and greater meaning based on his resurrection and ascension and exaltation. This is why in Acts 4.12 we see the disciples saying this about Jesus. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Now prior to the resurrection, prior to the exaltation of Jesus, nobody was saying to put your faith in Jesus to cry out to Jesus to be saved. Jesus was saying that. He was trying to wake people up to see that, but nobody else was saying that. And now after his resurrection, after his ascension, everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's God. That's the guy who saves you. That's the guy who does the work of salvation. He's Lord. He's Messiah. He's Savior. He's God. We cry out to that guy. It's him. It's Jesus. His name takes on greater meaning. Now, Jesus has always been that. But his life, death, and resurrection proves to us who he really is and who he's always been. So again, this is not necessarily a change in Jesus. It's, it's a change in revelation for us. It's seeing Jesus more clearly who he's always been. That's what I think verse 9 is teaching us. Hebrews 1.4 puts it this way. 
I can find it. Here we go. Hebrews 1.4 says, So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. So his name's always been more excellent. We're just now seeing it in a more fuller way. And I love how Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 summarizes all of what we've been talking about. He says, he exercises power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority and power and dominion and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. That's Jesus. That is Jesus. He's showing us who he is and who he's always been. And that is why there are billions of people right here, right now, worshiping the name of Jesus today. That's why countless more throughout church history in the last 2,000 years have worshiped and praised the name of Jesus Jesus is worshipped today as God, as Savior, as Messiah, as Yahweh, right? As God himself. We worship Jesus as God. Why? Because of this. Because we were shown through his resurrection, ascension, and exaltation who he is. He is God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. That's who Jesus is. That's who he's always been. I think that, that's what it means that, that he's given the name that is above every name. What we're seeing, oh yeah, that's who Jesus is. Yeah, that, that's the guy that saves. That's the guy we worship. Yeah, it's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. All right, so what does all this mean for us today? I'm going to give you three thoughts as we close up here. One, one of the things is, is it reminds us again who Jesus is, that we worship a risen Savior church. We don't worship a dead God. We don't worship a dead God. Like, there's so many other gods, false gods that people have worshipped throughout the years, throughout the centuries. And guess what? We can all go to their tomb. We can all go and know exactly where their remains are put. And look, we can go to the, the tomb of where Jesus was buried, where we think the tomb is. Because look, it's best guess because guess what? There's no body. There is no body. There are no remains because our God is not dead. He is alive. Church, we worship a risen Savior. And it is because of that resurrection, it is because he raised from the dead that we can be saved. Now, I've been telling you throughout this time that, that we needed the divinity of Jesus. We needed the humanity of Jesus. We needed him to come to earth. We needed the incarnation. We needed his perfect life. We needed his substitutionary death. In church, we need his resurrection. Without his resurrection, we have no hope of salvation. If Jesus did all of those things, if he was fully God, fully man, lived the perfect life, and died on the cross and stayed dead, church, we'd still be on our sins. We would still have no hope for salvation. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. We need the resurrection. And that's why the resurrection is the most significant event in human history. Because without that moment, without Easter Sunday church, we have nothing. We have nothing. We have no salvation. We have no forgiveness. We have no hope. 
praise be to God that that is not the case, that he has been raised, that he defeated the curse of sin. Death no longer reigns because our God has defeated it. Death is not the end. The consequences of sin, we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to face those consequences because Jesus has defeated all of it. He's done it through the resurrection. And the second thing this tells us is because Jesus is alive, that curse of sin is broken, and we no longer have to fear death. Church, we don't have to fear death. We don't have to, to go through this life, man, worried. Well, is this all there is? Where is the solution to all the brokenness and frustration and evil and wickedness that we see in this world? Where is there any hope? We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to live like that because Jesus has defeated sin and death. I love what, what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15. I want to read a couple of passages here from 1 Corinthians 15, starting in, verse, starting in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. It says this, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Because Jesus is raised, we have the hope of the resurrection, church. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear what comes next. And this is how Jesus describes our coming resurrection. He puts it this way. I love what Paul says here. Verse, 1 Corinthians 15, again, starting in verse 50, he says, What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with incorruptibility. When this corruptible body is clothed with, clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then we will then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, Jesus shows us the pattern of what's coming to us. That's why it's so important that he raises in physical form. Because that's what's going to happen to us, church. Man, we are going to be either raised from the dead. If we, if we die before Jesus comes back and brings all the eternal state, new heavens, new earth, we're going, to be, we're going to be raised up in physical glorified form. If he comes back while we're still alive, man, we're going to be changed in an instant. This corruptible body will no longer be corruptible. We will have a glorified, perfect, immortal body. And look, I don't know what that means, but I know it's going to be awesome. I know it's going to be amazing. I know I'm not going to wake up with my back hurting anymore. I do know that. I know I'm going to be able to eat as many tacos as I want to and not have to worry about what my cholesterol levels are. I know that's going to be the case. Church, I don't know. Again, I don't know all the details, but it is going to be awesome. Glorified, perfect, physical body for all of eternity. That is what's promised to us. That is what's coming to us. That is what Jesus patterns for us. He shows us what is coming. And church, that is such good news. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear what is coming. We know what's coming, and it's awesome. And we can look forward and long for that day, church. So Jesus defeats the brokenness and the curse of sin. And then lastly, lastly, what we see about the name of Jesus, it should remind us that when we put our faith in Jesus, we're given a new name. 
we are given a new name. 2 Corinthians 5.17 puts it this way, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Now, that word for new creation is one of my favorite words in all of Scripture because it means something brand new. Like nothing you've ever seen before, you are made completely, fully new. You're not just kind of dusted off or cleaned up or refurbished. No, you are made new. That is who we are in Christ. We are new. We're given a new name. We're given a new identity. We're given a new purpose. We're given new hope, new life, new joy, new satisfaction, all in the name of Jesus. A constant spiritual battle for us is remembering just that. It's remembering who we are in Christ, what our identity is in Jesus. Because, man, the enemy wants us to to doubt that. The enemy comes and he wants us to believe lies about who we are. He wants us to believe that our our name is, is guilt. Our name is shame. Our name is lonely. Our name is condemned, rejected, unloved. That's the message that the enemy speaks to us, and we need to reject that in the name of Jesus, church. That is not who we are. So before we end today, I want to remind us who we are in Christ. I just want to point out some of the places that Scripture speaks to who we are and what we have in Jesus. Church, this is who we are. These are the truths that we need to constantly remind ourselves of. Things like 1 John 3, 1 through 2 says that I am a child of God. John 15, 15, I am a friend of Christ. Romans 8, 15, I am adopted by God. Galatians 4, 7, I am an heir of God. Romans 8, 17, I am a co-heir with Christ. Ephesians 1, 3, I am blessed with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8, I am redeemed and forgiven. Romans 5, 1, I am justified. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, I have been given Christ's righteousness. John 5, 24, I have been given the promise of eternal life. Romans 6, 1 through 6, I have died with Christ to the power of sin. Romans 8, 1, I am free from condemnation. 2 Corinthians 2, 12, I have received the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 16, I have been given the mind of Christ. Galatians 2, 20, I have been crucified with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, I am a new creation. Ephesians 2, 5, I have been made alive with Christ. Ephesians 2, 10, I am God's workmanship. Colossians 2, 10, I have received fullness in Christ. John 15, 1, I am connected to the true vine. Romans 6, 18, I am free to pursue righteousness. 1 Corinthians 3, 16, I am a temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians 6, 17, I am one spirit with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, I am a member of Christ's body. 2 Corinthians 5.18, I am reconciled to God. 1 Corinthians 1.2, I am a saint. Ephesians 2.19, I am a fellow citizen in God's kingdom. Ephesians 2.13, I have been brought near to Christ. Ephesians 4.24, I have a new self created in the likeness of God. Ephesians 2.18, I have direct access to God. Philippians 3.20, I am a citizen of heaven. Colossians 1.13, I have been delivered from Satan's domain. Colossians 3.3, I am hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3.12, I am chosen, holy, and beloved. 1 Thessalonians 5.5, I am a child of light. 1 Peter 2.9, I am a member of a royal priesthood. Matthew 5.13, I am salt of the earth. Matthew 5.14, I am light in the world. 
John 15, 16, I am appointed to go and bear fruit. John 14, 12, I am called to do the works of Christ. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, I am a disciple maker. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19, I am a minister of reconciliation. Hebrews 7, 25, I am saved completely. And 2 Corinthians 3, 18, I am being transformed. Church, what good news is that? This is who we are in Christ. And look, I could go on and on and on. I had to cut myself short here. I wanted to have far more because the Bible speaks far more than just this about who we are in Christ. So when the enemy comes with his lies, we rebuke him in the name of Jesus and we remember who we are in Jesus. I am not unloved. I am not condemned. I am not rejected. I am not alone. I am not walking in my guilt and shame anymore. I am new in Jesus. My name is child of God. My name is forever loved, forever accepted in Christ. My name is holy and righteous in the eyes of God. My name is justified, sanctified, soon to be glorified, church. That is my name. That is who I am. And that is the identity that we walk in, church. That is what Jesus has done for us. Let us live in that name, in that identity. I'm going to pray for us in a moment. We're going to do what we do every single week. We're going to have this moment of worship and communion, and, and this time is for us to do exactly what, what we've been doing these few weeks, is reflecting on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And church, he has done so much, and he is worthy of all the worship that we could ever give and, and, and more than we could ever give, right? That's who Jesus is. So that's why we have this moment where we, we just pause, and we reflect, and we remember, and we eat the bread, and we, we drink of the cup to remember what Jesus did for us through his life, death, and resurrection. So this is for believers in the room. If you have put your faith in Jesus, this is a time for us to reflect, remember, and worship Jesus for what he's done for us. So church, as we do every week, take time, take moment to prepare yourself to spend maybe a moment in prayer and in worship. And then as you're ready, you go to the tables. And if you're here and you haven't put your, your faith in Jesus, I just want to tell you, man, that, that, that could happen today. The gift of salvation is offered to us all, and all Jesus says is, is to believe in him, to put your faith and your trust in him, and you will be saved. Call on the name of Jesus. He's our only hope. He's our only chance. He's our only shot at salvation. It is only through him. If you want to do that today, please come find me before you leave. Find somebody, one of our elders, somebody here. We would love to talk with you about what this looks like. Let me pray for us, church, and we'll step into a time of worship. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. Lord, we thank you for your life. We thank you for your death, and we thank you for your resurrection, Jesus. Thank you for saving us. You're the only one that could. And so, Jesus, today, because of that, we worship you. We worship your name. We worship who you are. You are God. You are Lord. You are Savior, Jesus. We praise you. We lift high your name, Jesus. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for redeeming us, for setting us free, for giving us life, Lord. You are worthy of it all, Lord. We love you and we pray all this in your name. Amen.